today's um, seminar. So I'd love to get started and on behalf of University Advancement's Lifetime Learning in partnership with the Alumni Association, I want to thank Dean Fontaine and the panelists for giving their time to speak today. Um, Dean Fontaine uh, has a passion for critical care nursing that underlies her distinguished career as a clinician, scholar, researcher, educator, and leader. Since her appointment as the Dean of the School of, Engin of Nursing, I apologize, I just changed schools on you. You do engineering too? <laughs> School of Nursing, Dean Fontaine has implemented appreciative inquiry methodology as the basis for the school's strategic planning and launched an interdisciplinary process to create a transformational model to provide compassionate end-of-life care across the healthcare spectrum. Please join me in welcoming Dean Fontaine, who will introduce the rest of the panelists. Thank you. Well, you know, nurses often marry engineers is what I found, but um, I'm just glad you're all here. Welcome back. Welcome back to reunions. We're going to have a great panel. I'm going to invite the panelists to come on up for a minute, and uh, I'm going to introduce them. And then as each of them speak, um, we're going to uh, allow the others to sit so that they can see the slides. So I'm really thrilled that you're all here. Yeah, go ahead and have a seat. Um, and I want to introduce this pretty amazing panel. And then I'm actually going to share a little bit about our Compassionate Care Initiative, which I'm running, just for you know a minute or so. So our first speaker is going to be uh, Professor David Germano. And I just need to tell you, these are three of my favorite colleagues at the University of Virginia. And we're all part of the Contemplative Sciences Center together. So David has been here as a Tibetan and Buddhist studies scholar for, well, since 1992. Is that right, David? Wow. And uh, our UVA's Tibetan Studies program is the largest in all of the Americas. And the Buddhist Studies program is one of the largest in the West. He's a full professor in religious studies. He's also a professor of nursing. And he's director of our Contemplative Sciences Center. And he's going to talk a little bit about contemplation in a, in a big realm and also what the Contemplative Science Center, what we've been able to do over the last three or four years. The next speaker is going to be uh, Professor Tish Jennings. Now, Tish is uh, Associate Professor of Education in our Curry School of Education. And she's internationally recognized leader in the fields of social and emotional learning. Um, she has brought mindfulness into education, is really looking at how we can reduce teacher stress, and that's what she's going to be talking to you about today. Her book is called Mindfulness for Teachers, Simple Skills for Peace and Productivity in the Classroom. It's a fabulous book. I've given it out to people for holiday presents. She is running the Compassionate Schools Project, which is a multi-million dollar project in Louisville. And she has also developed something for Care for Teachers. So she was one of our top recruits um, maybe two years ago. Have you been? Yeah, just two years ago. So we are really thrilled to have Tish here with us. And finally, but last but not least, we have somebody from our business school, the Darden School of Business. Lily Powell is a professor there, and she teaches courses on leadership presence, leading mindfully. I took her weekend course on mindful leadership. Um, and actually, I live on the lawn, but I had to move into Darden to the end to take that course, but it was very worth it. She's been on the faculty for about 20 years, and for over a decade, her passion has really been to help educate MBAs and executive MBAs, really look at how they can more intentionally and effectively do their work. 
through leading mindfully. She has a new book coming out. Um, she has another book on women and work. She has a new book coming out called Present, Leadership as Wise Practice. So please join me in welcoming our panel. And uh, I'm going to ask you, three of you, to go to the audience for a minute, and I'm going to say a few words about compassionate care and then bring David up. So, oh, I meant to have this slide on. So here's all of our smiling faces, um, as you can see all of us here. Um, and so the Compassionate Care Initiative has been ongoing for about six years at the University of Virginia in the School of Nursing, and we also align with the School of Medicine, as well as now we're under the umbrella of the Contemplative Science Center, which David is going to talk about. And this picture shows you what we're trying to do, which is to really help our clinicians, nurses, physicians, and others be fully present, pay attention to the patients and families before them. You know, a lot of errors happen because people are distracted in the health system. So this is what we're trying to do. We have things like nursing resiliency retreats, where we take our nurses out. We have 800 students, and we take them out to a farm called Morvin. We have classes, yoga, tai chi, knitting round tables, um, monthly creative arts workshop, mindful eating. It's kind of really trying to um, bring the concepts of mindfulness into the classroom so that we can create um, resilient nurses. Because right now, there's really workforce shortages, there's unhappiness, and there's really retention problems in, in healthcare. Some of you might be in healthcare and would be interested in hearing more about this. So I'm not going to do any more, though, than just you know whet your appetite, because David, as our leader of the Contemplative Sciences Center, is really going to talk about what is contemplation. Um, and then you'll hear from our other speakers. So David, come on up. So, thank you, Dory. And I'm just going to speak with my natural voice, since I have a loud voice, and I teach in this classroom all the time. We're doing a podcast. Oh, podcast. Oh, OK. Do I have to hold it? Is there a loud? Okay, that's all right. Don't be, be a problem. Just, just hold it up close. Um, Use all your contemplative powers. Yes. <laughs> I will marshal those. So I've been giving some version of a talk like this for a number of years now, almost five years. But I decided yesterday to just try a different tact with you. So what that will mean is usually people accuse me of, oh, I have to know what time it is, uh, 1.25, of speaking way too fast and using way too many words. So by doing something different, that has the virtue of speaking not as fast and using fewer words. And so what I want to start with is a question, the question not being what is contemplation, but what do we do at a university? This is a question that obviously a lot of people are asking these days, and it's often in the context of very tense dialogues across divides about what the function and nature of higher education is and what its future is. And so in that context, I wanted to offer you a very famous quote from Thomas Jefferson, something he said on the day after Christmas in 1820, where he described his vision of the University of Virginia's practice. This institution of my native state, the hobby of my old age, will be based on the illimitable freedom of the human mind to explore and expose every subject susceptible of its contemplation. So contemplation, it's not a new thing. It was right there at the beginning. 
It was in the defining essence of how Jefferson conceived of our university. It's the essence of a university. If there was one thing that we're supposed to do at a university, it's to ponder deeply and reflecting widely on a variety of topics. These can range from the body to the mind, from the individual to society, from the physical universe to the cultural world, to, uh, from an electron to a discourse, from a brain to a religion, from engineering a bridge to managing a K through 12 classroom, from designing a building to caring for a patient to understanding the organizational behavior of a business. Our job is to step aside from the transactional business, not to actually care for a patient or to actually build a business or to actually run a religion, but to think about these things deeply and broadly, to take a pause, a pause from the typical work that we engage in in the course of our lives. And for some of us, like those of us who are professors, it's a very extended pause, like for years and years. For undergraduates, it's a four-year pause to consider deeply, to contemplate. It's a word we use all the time. It's a word we say when we want to conflict, uh, convey, I'm not going to do this right now. I'm going to think about it. So from the very uh, kind of common to like Aaron could say, David, I want to raise. And I could say, I'm going to contemplate on that, <laughs> which means hopefully I'll consider it and I'm going to get back to you. But I'm not going to react. I'm not going to say what I could have said, which was, no. <laughs> or I could have said, yes, hell yes, you get a raise. So contemplation, this is what we do. We do it in the laboratories. We do it in the libraries. We do it in the archive. We do it in the fields. We do it in a variety of research and scholarly contexts. But there's one business, one, one like in the classical sense of the word business, we do at a university. And that is students. We deal with students. We deal with students in a variety of ways, in the residential dorms and the clinics when they have problems and intramural and academic classrooms across the university and so forth. Students, we don't just contemplate them. You don't come here as students or send your kids here as students and we as faculty just look at them really intently <laughs> and think, oh, what an interesting thing you've provided to us as a subject for contemplation. We take care of them. We take care for them. We have a mandate, and so what I wanted to take in my few minutes just to tell you a bit about what we've been thinking about undergraduate education and what we've been doing with undergraduate education and what we're conceiving for the future with undergraduate education. So, and in this context, ask the question, what is contemplation in that context? What does contemplation mean in the context of kids from the age of 17 to 22 that spend four years of their life here, that take a, a pause between high school, between adolescence and a future as an adult who has a job and a family and civic responsibility and so forth. What are the forms of contemplation that we facilitate for these students during these four years? Now, we're all familiar with certain kinds of things that happen in a typical university. We have contemplation, or we have forms of learning that are largely focused like here, on a lecture. One person speaks with you. A lot of people stare at that person speaking to you. And that's a form of discipline. It's a way of disciplining your body and your mind to sit there and watch the person and retain what they're talking about. And another form of learning that's very common is small seminar discussion, where you have 20, 15, 30 people sit in a room and they talk about a topic. And these can both be wonderful and they can both be terrible. 
But there are two forms of reflection, two forms of learning. And so, and we also, I'm going to get to this in a moment, but if we think about the university, it's not just the academic space, it's also the residential space. It's what happens in the dormitories, in the fraternities, in the sororities, in the apartments, and so forth. So students have at least two different forms of experience at the university, in their residential life, in their personal life on the one hand, and in the classroom, and in their intellectual life on the other hand. And so what might be a different way to conceive of what happens in both of those areas and the relationship between the two if we think more deeply about this word contemplation, if we ponder the word contemplation. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about how we've been conceiving of that and what we've been doing, but first let me give you a couple of principles. What is contemplation then? And so over the last four or five years we've been talking about it along these lines. First of all, it's a deliberate activity. It's a formal activity. A lot of things that we do with our learning, especially outside of the classroom, it's not deliberate at all. It's not focused. Kids are reading a book while watching television, while talking to their friends, while eating some food, while responding to text messages, and so forth. I have two daughters, and I've observed their behavior. It's not focused at all. It's not deliberate. It's not like you say, oh, this is a practice I'm going to now um, uh, entertain or, or employ in terms of my chemistry lesson or my English or my sociology or whatever it might be. They just do it along the course of their life. They don't think about what practices they're engaged in to accomplish these goals that they have in the classroom or in their personal life or their relationships. And typically when we look at our syllabi, we don't talk about the experiences we hope our students will cultivate. We don't talk about the practices we hope they will learn over the course of the semester, whether it's biology or psychology or, or business or commerce. And so this new way of thinking about contemplation is to not just ponder deeply and think broadly, but to also think about all the other ways that I can engage with my own life, where I can turn my awareness to myself and I can think about, as I go through the process of reading this book or studying this molecule or whatever it might be, what are, what's the kind of skills that I need? What are the kinds of experiences I need? And what are the kinds of practices that I have to learn to attune myself to and master so that I can actually accomplish my goals? And so what we've been doing is, first of all, yeah, people think about contemplation in a religious context, and we can look to Catholicism or Native American religions, or uh, three minutes, um, or Buddhism or Hinduism, and think about things like mindfulness and prayer and yoga and so forth. And that's one place we could look to for thinking more broadly about learning and these kinds of practices of self-development and self-understanding. But we can also look to many other different sectors of our society. We can look to leadership training. We can look to performance visualization in sports. We can look to what happens in the drama group or how case studies are taught in the business school. All across the university, there are many other alternative forms of learning and knowledge and development that are happening and in the health sciences with patient care and so forth. But what we've been trying to do in thinking about contemplation is how do we bring these all together and begin to think in a more integrated, holistic way about how we can convey to students what they're doing over the four years they're at a university, in their residential life and in their academic life. And so to give you some sense of what this looks like, Spanish 101, 
uh, some teacher who runs the Spanish program came to us and said, I have a problem with anxiety. Anxiety is interfering with our students' capacity to learn the languages. And this is a problem we see across the university. We did a survey of students and they said 33% of the students said that the primary obstacle to academic success is depression and anxiety. Well, if that's, the academic, if that's the primary obstacle to academic success, it means that in the classroom, we have to confront that. We have to think about not just giving them, here's the intellectual goals for this class, and here's the text you have to master, but also tell them, and we understand where you're at right now. And so here are some practices that you can engage in to manage your anxiety or to manage your concentration, or to help you have more empathy so you can understand different points of view. Or in the engineering school, they talk to us about the challenge of teamwork and communication and observational acuity, or being more holistically attuned to the dimensions of a problem and the consequences of what you do. So how can we bring practices into that classroom and help the students acquire the skills they need so they can accomplish the broader goals of that class, whether it's imagination, in the context of literature, or whether it's teamwork in the context of engineering, or whether it's managing your anxiety in the context of language learning. So what we've been embarked on over the last four years at the University of Virginia is working with a broad variety of schools and programs towards thinking about that goal. How to make the classroom a more engaged, participatory place where we talk to students about where their bodies and minds are, how they can go through a series of practices to adjust where they are in terms of empathy or concentration or resiliency or anxiety and so forth, and help faculty understand how they they can integrate these better into their classroom space and also doing programs in the residential dorms so that the RAs and people running residential life can also be thinking about how to stitch together the practices and development that's happening there with the practices and developments that are happening in the classroom. So that's kind of a, a very general overview of what we've been doing. And Tish Jennings will talk to you more about what we've been doing in the K through 12 space and Lily Powell more in the context of the Darden Business School. Thanks, it's great to be here. Um, how many of you are Curry grads? Do you have any Curry alums? Any, anybody who's a teacher right now working in education? Or just working in education? Okay, great. Oh, wonderful, good. Yes, you are. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about what we've been doing to support teachers and students in schools, and it builds a lot on what, what David just said in terms of, of helping um, expand the way we learn and understand uh, uh, how we learn. But first I want to tell you a little bit about what you might, you might already know this, but uh, right now uh, teacher job satisfaction is starting to plummet. I don't know if anybody's noticed this. Um, teachers are under a lot of pressure. There's a lot of stress in education right now due to the um, you know, accountability measures, but also uh, children are coming to school with a lot of uh, uh, problems and uh, teachers aren't necessarily prepared to handle this pressure. So um, we've been applying a mindfulness-based approach to supporting teachers' well-being uh, in order to help improve their performance in the classroom. And um, so just if you, if you aren't familiar with the term mindfulness, one way I like to think about it in my research is that it has these two dimensions of uh, attention, uh, focused attention, uh, and the ability to regulate one's attention. And sometimes it may be focused and sometimes it might be broad. Um, but also there's this dimension of non-judgmental awareness. 
Um, and it's important to understand that this non-judgmental awareness means an openness to an experience which may involve judgment. I always tell people that because they say, well, what do you mean non-judgment? I could notice when I'm practicing mindfulness that I'm being very judgmental. And, but that's still, a, that's still a mindful practice. Oh, that's very judgmental thought. I'm no, you know, I notice that about myself. Um, so it's more about acceptance and openness to what's happening in the moment. Um, and there's a lot of evidence, there's a growing body of evidence that mindfulness can be very beneficial to our well-being and our ability to function, our ability to regulate ourselves and, um, and generate a, a sense of well-being and resilience, which, um, you know, Dory and I have that in common of helping to build resilience in a profession that has very high levels of stress. Um, so the, one of the findings over the last few years that I think is, is very interesting is a few years ago this paper was published that showed an actual change in the density of the hippocampus as a result of eight weeks of mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is the most studied mindfulness-based program out there. And when this data, these data were published, it was a really important milestone because it actually showed that these emotion regulation changes that we were seeing in people's behavior actually correlated with some changes in the brain, uh, which supported what we were doing in a very powerful way. So over the last 10 years or so, um, my colleagues and I have been developing a program called Care for Teachers um, because we noticed the stress was interfering with performance and we wanted to find ways to help teachers manage the stress of the classroom. This program is a five-day program. You can see how it's sort of spread out over uh, the course of several days. Um, and in between these days, we've, we do phone coaching with the teachers who are participating to help them apply what they're learning to their teaching practice. The program involves a variety of different activities, but it starts with self-care, with the understanding that if you are a person who cares for other people, be it a nurse or a teacher or a doctor or anyone, you need to care for yourself because otherwise you won't be able to maintain the kind of strength and resilience you need to do your job. Um, we teach a lot about emotional awareness so that teachers understand the reactivity that they're experiencing in the classroom when their students misbehave is a totally natural, normal experience, but we give them tools for understanding and responding to those situations more effectively. We also teach mind mindful awareness practices, a series of them, and uh, we also teach empathy and compassion practices to help them generate this feeling of care that they came to the profession with, but they often lose over time out of exhaustion. Uh, and then we apply these skills through role plays to situations that they share with us are challenging. So they have a chance to apply it before they go back to their classrooms. So we've been conducting a large randomized controlled trial of this program in New York City over the last few years that was funded by the U.S. Department of Education. So this is exciting because it shows that the United States government is interested in this and is starting to support it. Um, we had 224 teachers in our sample. We did this study in the Bronx and, Man and uh, Upper Manhattan. Anybody from living in New York here? Yeah, so you know where I'm talking about. Um, we had a very diverse sample of teachers and over 5,000 students in our sample. What's really exciting is we, we measured the teachers on their well-being and their mindfulness and their emotion regulation at the beginning. Then we randomly assigned all these teachers to either be in a waitlist control group or to receive the care training. And these are um, the results of this study. We showed significant 
decreases in personal distress. Personal distress is depression, anxiety, burnout, sleep problems. So we saw a significant decrease in that. We saw a significant decrease in something called time urgency, which is the stress that you feel when you don't feel like you have enough time to accomplish what you need to accomplish. Anybody ever feel that way? I know I do. <laughs> um, and teachers feel that a lot. Um, because there is a lot to do, and it's very hard to get through everything you have to get through. But teachers reported that they felt less of this pressure. Um, we showed a significant improvement in their emotion regulation, and also a significant improvement in their mindfulness. Now, this effect on uh, efficacy, which was not significant, I just have to give you the caveat, because the teachers in New York City started, their, their level of baseline efficacy was very high. The teachers in New York are highly educated, um, so they didn't have much room to move, and that's why we didn't see it. They were already very highly efficacious. So we might have seen that in a different sample. Or actually, we did. In our previous study in Pennsylvania, we did see significant improvements in efficacy. So the other thing that's exciting about this study, and this is a little complicated, but I, I have to give you the background first. Before, the tr the, before we randomized the teachers, we observed all their classrooms, and we rated the quality of their teaching based on a measure that was developed by uh, uh, Bob Pianta, our dean. And it looks at quality of the classroom. And after, um, after the training, we showed significant improvements in our care group in emotional supportiveness. I think, uh, oh. Uh, emotional supportiveness, which involves uh, positive climate, the positive climate of the classroom improved. The teachers were more sensitive. And then they also showed improvements in productivity and uh, in, in the other area. That's a little tricky to see. But this is exciting because it's the first time anybody's ever shown that by providing mindfulness instruction to a group of people, you can see downstream effects of it in their context. So. I know my time is almost up, and I wanted to have time to show you about another project we're working on. This is a video about a project we're doing in Louisville, Kentucky, called the Compassionate Schools Project. Um, and I think I'll just turn the video on, because I think it will speak for itself, and then later I'll have time to answer any questions about it. Having a 
cousin's over. He drives me nuts a little. And he woke me up this morning and drove me nuts. And I like coming in here because it's very easy to take the stuff that you had in the morning or in your life away. What I've noticed is students really are fascinated with that idea of compassion for other people. And I think it seems like something they've almost been craving. Mindful means that you take your thoughts, your inner feelings, and you use them in your benefit to get through your day, to worry about yourself, to deal with frustration. It's a big difference because I have used what Mr. Redding has taught me. I take it to classes and at home, teaching my parents what I've learned in CSP. I think that we want our world to be a more peaceful place. And we want our citizens to be more thoughtful and more mindful about the decisions that they make when they're interacting with one another. So what's at stake is our kids having a great life, our kids having a future, and they're counting on us. They're absolutely counting on us to figure it out. It's just a picture of my book, and uh, I'm happy to answer any questions later. Okay, can you hear me all right? Okay, very good. So um, I'm curious, and there are a lot of you here, and it's a beautiful sunny day, and what in the world would make you come here <laughs> when it's your reunion weekend? I'm curious, how many people in the room already have some kind of practice that they would call mindfulness-based or a contemplative type of practice? Is that one of the reasons you're here? Okay, so I'm looking around and seeing maybe a third of people here. Good. So um, that, that helps me for uh, the talk that I want to give. So uh, David talked a good bit about uh, con contemplation and what it is. And Dory and Tish have each talked about uh, contemplation in particular contexts, first in nursing uh, and in healthcare, but then with teachers and in education. I want to talk with you about mindfulness in the context of leadership, and particularly within business, but leadership shows up in lots of different places. I see a number of people are here with their families, for example. Certainly parents know that leadership happens in families, um, and kids would sometimes like to say that they lead their parents. <laughs> so leadership is something that shows up in many different contexts, but. For our purposes today, I want to talk to you about applications that I've been using and working with in the context of business. How many of you have an experience that looks something like our gentleman in this picture? Uh, 
pretty often, right? And um, if there are a lot of reasons why many of us might be challenged to show up well at work or in our leadership or in our families or in our communi communities. There are a lot of different sources of what I would say is noise. Lots of external noise, for example. So, for example, we have um, information overload. We have 24-7 work environments, not only uh, enabled because of globalism, but also these little devices. Right? And you think about the control that these devices have on our own attention and in our own lives. Here's shaking your head, right? <laughs> these are our encyclopedias, our um, telephone books. They are also uh, our communication devices. And they are our ego machines. <laughs> right? So we become very attached to these. And we actually even talk about becoming addicted to them. And did you know that one of the reasons why you get addicted is because you get a little squirt of dopamine every time you get a ping, right? And that is just like Pavlov's dogs, right? You're getting, you're getting conditioned just like Pavlov's dogs. So we have this attachment to these devices, and it's pretty hard to let them go. The other thing, though, is that we have internal noise. And that internal noise is something that I experience with my students all the time. My students at the Darden School uh, tend to be pretty high achievers. And because of that, um, they drive themselves very hard. And one of the things they will do is come up and whisper to me at some point during the course and say, you know, I'm really not very nice to myself. You know, I've got this voice in my head while I'm giving a presentation, and man, it is evil. I have one, I have one student who actually named that voice. He called him Herman, right? <laughs> and Herman has that ability to comment constantly on whatever he's doing, and uh, it affects his performance because he gets quite distracted by that. Well, it's been one of my passions to help students deal with that voice and to work with it in more effective ways. This is actually not a terribly new idea. Um, this is a picture of Peter Drucker, who is thought by many to be the father of modern management. And one of the things he has said is that you really cannot manage other people unless you manage yourself first. But then there's this question, how do you act on this wisdom? How do you act on this wisdom? Most of us would recognize, yeah, you've got to manage yourself. You've got to have some control, right? You have to have some focus. But how do we act on that? Well, that's the thing that has been fascinating me for the last 10 years. I want to be clear about how I'm using the term mindfulness, because if David and I were talking about this, we would quibble and we'd have a little bit of an argument about it. But I mean mindfulness as an umbrella term for what David would call contemplative practices. Okay? I mean it as an umbrella term. Now, mindfulness is a particular thing, just like a Kleenex is a particular brand. But we often say, would you hand me a Kleenex, right, in a very generic way. So I'd like us to be thinking about mindfulness as an umbrella term that um, includes a lot of different practices. But what it has in common is helping us develop a quality of attention, a certain quality of attention that helps us understand and recognize how a stimulus is working on us and how we respond to that stimulus. A lot of the times, 
uh, in the video, the boy was saying something about his cousin was over and he's getting on his nerves, right? What that little boy could learn is what is it that that cousin is doing that sets him off, that triggers him, and then how does he react to it? And if we can slow his attention down to watch what's happening, oh, it's when he takes my toy away. And when he does that, it gives me this hot feeling in the back of my neck. Okay. That's powerful information. And what we can do is we can help that kid open up a little space between the hot feeling in his neck and punching his lights out, right? Well, same thing goes at work, right? There are people at work who tick us off and uh, you know they cause a certain reaction. We feel it as a sensation in our bodies but before we lash out and send the nasty gram their way, right, or give them a demerit of some kind, we might be able to open up more choice. So what mindfulness does is it helps us pay a quality of attention so that you can end up making better choices and perform better. It's simple as that, okay? Now that shows up uh, in leading mindfully like this. We learn how to take care of that for ourselves as individuals and then the next step in leadership is to manage collective attention. So I'm not just managing my own attention, I'm managing the collective attention of the people around me. Robert Frost, the American poet, had a saying, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. I like to paraphrase that and say, no focus in the leader, no focus in the follower. Right? So if you're not focused, it's pretty hard to expect others to be un understanding what you'd like them to do. This is a model that my colleague Jeremy Hunter and I, um, who's from the Drucker School at Claremont University, have developed. And it's quite simple. It looks like uh, an infinity loop, a uh, Mobius loop there. And on the one side is managing yourself. On the other side is leading others. Now, a lot of management uh, information has uh, gone into talking about how to change your own behavior. Well, if you can peel back the onion and actually look at the way you're thinking and reacting, that can make for a powerful moment. So we try to help people start with the present moment and focus on now. And that can begin with a um, separate practice, a solo practice is what I call it, but it can uh, actually evolve into interactions with other people. This is what I like to call inner work, putting your own oxygen mask on first. And inner work is not what this comic says. I will focus on my breathing so I can tune out their idiocy. I will focus on my breathing so I can tune out their idiocy. Right? Instead, it's adopting an attitude of goodwill, and it allows you to be more resilient in the moment and more effective. Okay. This is a, a little graphic that's available on um, the Contemplative Mind uh, site. It shows uh, a number of different practices. The ones that I have personally found helpful are yoga and meditation, uh, but there are also informal practices, which might be for you walking the dog, going for a run. There are a lot of different ways that you can practice becoming more aware of yourself and um, becoming more effective. Contemplative practices altogether mean slowing down, paying nuanced attention, 
conscious experiencing, making meaning, and connecting with others, especially with the attitude of goodwill. And that's a pretty important thing for leaders to do because their chief job is inspiring other people. Right. Here are some quick uh, work applications for you. This is one of my clients say, put more being in our doing. Uh, it could look like disconnecting to connect, turning off cell phones at the beginning of a meeting. It can look like pausing and centering throughout the day using a mindfulness bell, for example, that uh, gives you a reminder to just take a moment breathe, what am I doing, why am I doing it. You can do check-ins at the beginnings of meetings. Uh, some people will bring a bell to the beginning of a meeting, for example, and ring the bell just as a way of bringing everyone's attention into the room. Uh, deep breathing before a presentation, giving full attention in a conversation. When you're at your computer and someone comes to your door, you actually turn away from the monitor and give them your full attention. Okay? Refraining from gossip and speculation, reflecting on lessons learned, imagining the consequences of your actions, and visualizing the future. All of these, were we to have more time, would be ways that we could um, practice this more. There are some very simple practices that you can learn on your own. Um, actually, it just so happens that this month I have an article in Mindful Magazine. This is on the newsstands now, but I brought copies of the article for you. In it is a, a practice called Arrive, Breathe, and Connect that you can practice on your own, but also in difficult conversations with people. These are just a few of the companies that are interested in mindfulness now. They, uh, all these companies actually were present at a conference in early May called the Mindful Business Conference. They actually now have a chief mindfulness officer at Aetna. So this is a whole new world right now in, in business. I'll just leave you again with this model. Um, leading mindfully starts with the present moment awareness. Its intention is to link insight to action and open up choice to improve your performance. So I believe it's now it's time for, for some questions. Yes, please. Why don't we Thank you, Lily. That was great. And Tish and David, why don't you all come up? We have a good um, 20 minutes, half hour for questions. And uh, David, you're going to come up too. Can you please wait till I bring the microphone to you? This is being, we're um, podcasting this, so wait for your question till I get to you with the mic. Thanks. Terrific. So I think they've given us lots to think about um, in the realm of, you know, what is contemplation as well as some really amazing practical applications. And I just want to say that UVA, your university that you're so proud of that you've come back for reunions, um, we really are at the forefront of this. And um, I just wanted to make sure that you knew that that's why we were, were holding this seminar. So on with the questions. Who might have one? Um, I think it sounds great. I'm, I'm impressed. I, I love the idea of incorporating it in all of these aspects. But my, I'm, I'm guessing, and I just wanted to ask, if you're getting a lot of pushback, I know a little bit more about the education side than the business. That would be him. Um, it seems like with all the pressure on the teachers and the students and the testing and the requirements and the additional grade, everything, it seems like the last thing a lot of schools would want to agree to is to add an additional program that's going to take time and going to take time away from passing the test, right? So I'm wondering what kind of pushback you're getting 
you know, from places that don't want to have to incorporate something else, and they just feel like it's one more thing they have to incorporate and make time for. So let's let Tish, you go ahead, but I wonder, Lily could probably also respond, and how do you put this in a business curriculum, too? So that's a really good question, and uh, I didn't get a chance to explain this, but the Compassionate Schools Project, what we're doing is we're reinventing health and PE education. So we're taking an area of the curriculum which has been really neglected for a long time because everybody's been focused on math and STEM and, you know, and we're, we're reinventing it in, in terms of how, what, how do we prepare our children to manage their, their health and well-being across their whole lifespan. And so this was a really great place to plug this in. And, and, and uh, what we're finding is that it's not hard to align what we're doing with standards. Um, so we're not adding anything. We're, 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 we're improving an existing area of the curriculum in this case. Now, there are other programs that are doing, um, are, are adding to the curriculum. And I, I can address that as well because one of the things we are learning now is that when you're feeling anxious uh, and you're having a hard time um, paying attention, it's very hard to learn. <laughs> so the time you might invest in giving even a minute or two to students to help them learn these skills may actually improve their ability to perform better academically. So um, the more we look at this, the more we're seeing that there is value either way. Um, as far as the teachers go, it's also hard to get teacher's time. Um, but again, there's a lot of very poor quality professional development out there right now that teachers spent, waste their time on. So what we're hoping is that we'll be able to help people understand uh, the value of this uh, um, this kind of work for their um, ultimate success. But the other thing I'm doing next week, I'll be in, at Columbia in New York City studying a cost-benefit analysis because what I think we'll be able to do is make the case that this program is really well worth the money. If it costs $4,000 to give your teachers, a, you know, a whole, a whole school full of teachers this training and it saves you twenty dollars or $30,000 in health care costs, you know, that could be really incredible. So... Thank you for your question. Do you want to so I'm going to let Lily talk. But first, my sister's a school nurse um, in Monroe, New York, right outside Manhattan, where actually Mike Toby is from. Anybody remember that name? Um, and uh, she was able to, as a school nurse, to put it in the health curriculum. Kind of snuck it in, but the principal, super. Now it's like a big deal, and it's part of the curriculum. So I think there's, you know, there's renegades initially, and then things become more mainstream. So Lily's going to talk about how she's managed to infuse it into Darden. Yeah, um, it's a great question because people worry it's going to take a lot of extra time, and so. I think it's important, at least it has been in my context, to link it to something that people care about a lot. And for my students, it's been public speaking. Um, I teach public speaking. I call it leadership presence. I actually use a lot of different kinds of methodologies. I'm trained in rhetoric, which is the study of language and symbols and, uh, and oratory. But I've adapted it uh, along with some Great. Ah, excellent. Um, thank you. Uh, I've, I've, I've infused the traditional kind of teaching on that topic with uh, acting, uh, yoga, and mindfulness. And so what I've learned is that 
because of my students having that anxiety related to public speaking, and it's one that most people can relate to on some level, I attach it to alleviating that anxiety and helping people focus in the moment so that they are present within themselves and can create presence with an audience. That has been great because um, public speaking anxiety is a social anxiety that most people would readily admit to. You know, it's not, yeah, I'm, I'm nervous, I'm gonna give a presentation. That's, it's a normal thing for people to be concerned about. So that was my first I guess, foothold into it. And I've actually been experimenting with growing it in other more mainstream settings. So I actually introduced mindfulness um, during the very first week of school, uh, both in our residential program and in our executive um, MBA program. And I decided that if I was gonna get the rest of my colleagues on board that I would start offering uh, a weekly power pause is what I call it. And it's Tuesdays for half an hour at lunchtime where anybody can come and we just go through. I'm also trained as a yoga teacher, so this is the other thing. Um, we just do a little bit of um, movement and a little bit of meditation and sitting quietly and some talk about that. So it's an ongoing process. Um, but it, I find that people are more and more open to it. The more the word becomes common knowledge and part of our vocabulary. Great, thank you, Lily. Um, other questions? Uh, I guess a question for Professor Powell. How much time do you recommend or what techniques uh, throughout a work day do you recommend your business students to de dedicate towards mindfulness so that they're more effective or their prescribed intervals or how should you structure your day in that regard? Yeah, you know, I think that works. It's kind of an individual choice, but so often it works for people to do something early in the morning. Now, not everyone's home environment is conducive to that. If you're trying to get kids out the door, that's, that's a challenging time to try to be quiet. Sometimes people get up early. Um, a really easy time is if, if you um, drive to work, then when you park, take a moment, three to five minutes even, before you walk in the building. Just to, it's a quiet place, people are leaving you alone, and um, it gives you a, a place to get into a frame of mind that helps you through the day. I have students who like to do it at lunchtime, I have students who will do it just periodically, go in the office, close the door, I think there are some really great tools out there um, that are easy to get and easy to use that are a good place to start if you're still thinking about starting. So there's an app called Headspace, and the first 10 sessions are free. You can download the app and get the first sessions free, and it's just a quick introduction to um, mindfulness meditation. Then once you finish the first 10, it if you buy a subscription, and it's not terribly expensive, it's maybe, I don't know, eight or nine dollars a month, uh, you can um, download all of the series, and there is a foundation pack, and then it opens up to health, relationships, stress, uh, performance, a lot of different things. So that's a great source. And then there's another source called Wheel, it's spelled W-H-I-L, and they offer both mindfulness and yoga um, on an app. 
So this is a nice way to get, it's portable, you know, it's, and it's like training wheels um, if you're just getting started. You know, we're all looking for ways to um, integrate this into the normal life, so I loved your question. You know, nurses wash their hands hundreds of times a day. We still don't always get it right, you know. Mm -hmm. But one of the things we're doing is helping our nurses as students to realize that when they're washing or gelling their hands, that that's the time to take a deep breath, ground through their feet, even if it's what uh, Roshi Joan Halifax calls a micro-reflective action, which mm -hmm. is just one deep breath, breathe out, focus your intention, attention and intention mm -hmm. for the next pretty complex patient that you're going to deal with. So these are great, like what are the simple tips we can do? And before the next question, I wonder, David, if I'm going to put you on the spot. We are really looking at anxiety in our students. And we have had, through the Contemplative Science Center, a whole effort for first years with creating resiliency and um, doing various activities. I wonder, is this a good opportunity maybe to mention what we're doing here at UVA for our first years? Sure, I'll just give you a brief picture of that. What we've been talking about and working on right now is a collaboration with the University of Wisconsin, University of California, Los Angeles, and Penn State University about building a three-credit academic course to use for our first-year students. And so the idea would be when you first come to the university to have a course that half of it is focused on the intellectual and theoretical framework to begin to think about these issues for our students as they transit from high school to college life, and half would be focused on these concrete practices that they can deploy even as they're going about their business over the course of the year so they can begin to see that when they arrive at the university, they're on a spectrum on almost every possible imaginable state of being in terms of their bodies, their capacities to relate to other people, their social-emotional intelligence, their capacity to concentrate, to have empathy, all things that matter for their success in their personal lives and their professional lives and in the classroom spaces. And so the idea is to take a course that would essentially introduce them to those ideas and frameworks and give them concrete practices. And just to summarize that really briefly, the idea is that we tend to think that we're very, um, we are just how we are. And my, my daughters would always tell me that, say, Dad, that's just who I am. That's just how I am. Don't go trying to change me. Even though all the evidence suggests, our personal evidence and the research, they're changing all the time. They're incredibly plastic in character. They're malleable. They're our brains and our bodies and our emotions and so forth. The challenge is how do we convey to our students that that plasticity is right now, it's here today, and that there are practices. You don't have to be the way that you were determined by your genetics or your parents or your upbringing, but rather there are very specific practices like Lily and Tish were talking about that might take five minutes a day, might just be a way to reconceptualize as you walk across campus, might be an hour doing yoga or whatever it might be, and you can change those ways that you are to become ways that are more aligned with your personal success, your values, and so forth. So I could say more about what we're actually doing, but that's just one yeah. direction that we're going to. That's great. And, and people do tell us that if you put credits to it, people will pay attention to. <laughs> you know, everybody wants to get an A, right? Um, more questions for our panel. Yeah. I have a lot of work to do is what I'm learning in this session. <laughs> 
thank you very much for, for all of your comments and information, especially across the different disciplines. Um, Could you tell us also, I should have asked, um, if maybe not the year, but go ahead, <laughs> um, what, what reunion year and what school? So 1996 School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, um, but a career mostly in, in business. Um, and so I'm curious for Lily, but just in general um, on careers and as you brought up some of the large corporations that are attending or incorporating mindfulness into their organizations, what do you see the impact on corporations and business in the future if that's really adopted? Does their, does their purpose or mission change? Does their role in society change? Yeah, those are all great questions, and I think that's where this topic is evolving. Um, in business circles, I think the first, um, I guess the first wave has been reducing the stress of people in the workplace, whether it's workers or leaders or managers. Uh, the second wave is, I think, that once people realize that they are able to concentrate better, they're able to show up it with an attitude of goodwill, to work, that they start noticing other changes. And a lot of that we're documenting somewhat uh, anecdotally right now. And we're getting to the point where we like to be able to measure efficacy and changes in performance. Um, I can tell you uh, about one example that I'm working with right now. I'm working on a case study um, with a gentleman named Sewang Nyamgal who is um, uh, in investment banking with the Mitsubishi, um, Mitsubishi Financial Group. And one of the things he's done is he's championed uh, uh, mindfulness and in introducing it to his company in the Americas. Well, it turns out that we're starting to notice that there have been some, some real changes in the way the front of the house, which uh, uh, brings deals into the company, deals with the back of the house, which is the credit office, which evaluates whether it's a good deal or not. And these two offices ought to be in tension. You don't, you don't want them to agree all the time. You want the credit um, people to say, hey, no, that's a bad deal. We don't want to be in that, right? But instead of making it an adversarial kind of thing, they are saying that the mindfulness training has allowed them to listen more deeply when they have those conversations and to also um, keep more of an open mind and when they're having them. So they, are, they believe that they're coming to better decisions about that. Um, there are other examples. CVS, for example, um, made a decision recently to stop selling cigarettes. And that was a very controversial decision, and they have taken a fairly substantial hit financially for it. Um, but their belief is that if they're going to grow into being a healthcare company, which they see as the future of their business, they have no business being in cigarettes. And so that um, is a short-term negative impact with a long-term promise. So if you go to CVS today, instead of seeing a bunch of Marlboros behind the counter, you'll see Nicorette boxes. And, um, and they'll ask you to donate to the Lung Association when you go to check out. So this is a way, I think, in which businesses are becoming more conscious about their obligation to society and making strategic changes, not just cosmetic changes. I think it's a good point what Lily just mentioned about the health, the health side. You know, all of us are in health plans, and a lot of our 
money that we're paying goes to um, take care of people in all of our big plans that have stress-related illnesses. We just looked at our own data here at the University of Virginia, and it's, you know, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, depression was the number four most highly rated um, injury or workplace uh, disability, let's say. And so what we're talking about today is a way to really look at that, how to help people be the very best they can be and deal with it. So this all has a bottom line. You know, all of us are paying out monthly, right? Whether it's a little more hidden um, or not. And so I think that those are the, some of the long-term business benefits as well to all of us. Think of what we could do with that money. Um, to keep people well, you know. So we do have another 10 minutes for a couple more questions, if we have some. Anything else? Do the kids want to ask a question? No. <laughs> yeah, okay, over here. You said you were a teacher. Tell us your reunion year yeah, or, or sure. your profession, whatever. Yeah, 1996. Um, Welcome back. Thank you, yeah. Uh, and what school? Uh, um, college. So I, I run charter schools in Nashville, Tennessee, and um, I'm curious, you've, you've mentioned, uh, as for Lily primarily, I think, to start with, um, you've talked about uh, a mindfulness practice almost as an, uh, a prescription or a solution for people that struggle with anxiety. Um, but if you think about like, all of the leadership competencies and skills, what other skills and competencies does mindfulness practice like really develop or benefit? So like where else would you prescribe that if you were looking at leaders that maybe didn't struggle with anxiety but just had other opportunities and shortcomings? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, my background is in communication, so I, see, I tend to see things through that lens. So uh, it helps, what, where it really helps is with perception, and perception is the root skill. What are you paying attention to and how are you paying attention to it? And that, that has all kinds of downstream effects. Anxiety is one way in which our perception sometimes gets warped, right? Depression might be another one. Um, and, and yet, perception also plays into our ability to listen carefully our ability to, um, to see problems in um, more creative lights, uh, our ability to look at things from different points of view. We talk at the business school quite a lot about taking a stakeholder approach, meaning that we're not just looking at how to increase the bottom line, but how to improve society for all stakeholders, whether they are customers or even the environment. So that attention to attention and the perspective taking that comes with it I think just has all kinds of downstream effects. Um, it makes us more aware and intentional about the way we use language. Um, it makes us be able to articulate a vision in a way that inspires other people. So I think there are a lot of other ways. I just, just as I was saying before, this anxiety piece it was sort of the, my foot in the door, if you will. So thank you for that question, and uh, we are um, coming to the end here, but I just wanted to make a, a couple of other observations. You know, our own student health here, 
um, has had a real rise in first year and other students having a lot of stress disorders. They're seeing a huge uptake. And that's true around the country. It's not, you know, it's not that we are more rigorous, although you know we are. <laughs> um, but we're trying to look at the whole person and really create um, individuals that can really focus on their own flourishing um, and not just getting that A. Um, in class. So I, I do think we're leaders in some of that, but we've certainly realized that what we're doing is important and it really matters. So I encourage you to take a look at, I think it's uvacontemplation.org is our website. Erin um, up here would be happy as we go outside, she's one of our directors as well, she would be happy to take names and emails of who'd like to be on the newsletter, get our newsletter, but we'd love you to take a look at that. And um, I just want to thank you for your interest. Clearly, you um, are probably appreciating what we're focusing on, and we are just so happy that we were able to share it with you today. I know there's another group coming in here now, um, so we'll step outside if you want to talk to us more. But thank you so much. I'm going to turn it back over. I just want to echo.